0: a profoundly mediocre pianist. Perhaps this sounds like false modesty, but let me assure you it is very true. I'm pretty good at ear training, so I can pick up almost any pop song and play it with relative ease, and I can slowly but surely plunk my way through some kind of medium-level sheet music. I like to think that I'm a good enough pianist to play at one of the local music nights that people often have at pubs here, where everyone joins in and no one has to be too good, and all you have to be able to do is keep up with the rhythm, play the right chords, and follow the general dance that everybody else is embarking in with their many instruments. But if you asked much more of me, if you asked for precision or even perfection, I would have to disappoint. I was thinking about this recently while watching one of my friends who is a classically trained pianist. I watched in awe as his fingers danced away on the keys with a kind of frightening precision. I thought about the hundreds and hundreds of hours he had spent playing scales over and over again, the structure and the discipline that went into making him who he was. As I watched him, I was struck by how free he looked while he played. It was this kind of exultant release of creative energy. And I thought about how blocked I feel when I play, because there's this kind of excellence, this kind of beauty, this kind of release that he has kind of captured in his disciplined fingers that my fumbling fingers cannot access. And I thought about that. I thought about how my desire for freedom was curtailed by my lack of discipline. We live in a world where freedom is probably one of the very highest values, especially in the United States. We think of freedom and justice for all. It's so a part of our values that we wouldn't even stop to question whether or not freedom was good and important. But I've come in my older years to ask, what is freedom? What makes us truly free? I've sometimes heard freedom described as not being forced to do anything that anyone tells you that freedom is a liberty to your own self-determination. We've all got kind of the idea of freedom in the back of our head of the no harm principle, that we let anyone do anything as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. But under this definition, I would think that I would be a more free pianist because I hadn't been subjected to the discipline, the constraints and the restraints of classical training. But it's my very lack of discipline my very lack of having been subjected to a particular way of doing things, of having someone tell me how to be and what to do, that makes me less free in my expression and in my creative uh, and musical expression. My friend has certainly had more people tell him what to do when it comes to playing piano, and he has certainly limited his own choice and his own expression. But those limitations, it seems like, have actually made him more free than me who's not been limited and yet finds myself limited when it comes to my own expression. I think this boils down to the fact that freedom is really always a freedom to something. We are free to speak, to choose, to play the piano. And that freedom to is always limiting. And without some sense of structure or restraint or law, Freedom really isn't freedom at all. It is restraint and boundaries that give us the freedom to be excellent, to express ourselves freely. It reminds me of a passage that I read this summer in Madeline Lingle's beautiful um, book called The Circle of Quiet. Madeline Lingle is one of my kind of inspiring authors. She was an imaginative fiction writer. You think of her for Wrinkle in Time, but also wrote many reflections, kind of theological reflections. And this particular work was something that she, it really, it's really a journal. It's a journal of her summer and her uh, family's farm, where she had her mother, her children, and her grandchildren all under one roof. And she kind of reflects on what it is to be a writer and a mother and to live well in her own difficult times. And in this particular passage, she is reflecting on what it was like to teach a whole bunch of students' literature. I believe it was in New York City in the 70s. This is when the book is written. And of course, this is at the height of um, everything kind of going down in America. We had the kind of constant threat of nuclear annihilation. You had flower children. You had protests against the wars. Uh, We had what we call now the sexual revolution in which everything was being questioned. And and so she's writing and teaching at that time. And this is what she writes. Students talked loudly about wanting to be free, to dance, to make love, to be themselves. So do I. So we left literature and talked about the body. And I kept asking questions. What is it in you which gives you this freedom? Finally, one of the young men with great reluctance hold out the word. Skeleton. It is our bones, our structure, which free us to dance, to make love. Without our structure, we would be an imprisoned amorphous blob of flesh, incapable of response. The amoeba has a minimum of structure, but I doubt it has much fun. I think that Lingle is hitting on something profoundly important when it comes to the true nature of freedom. Which is that to truly be free, we must be free to choose goodness. And only structure allows us the freedom to choose wisely and freely. This morning in my quiet time, I read Psalm 119, 45, which says, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. This verse struck me as so fascinating because... It's saying that because I seek your precepts or your laws, which ostensibly would be things that would contain, control, or curtail our freedom, because he seeks these laws, he walks at liberty. Structure, restraint, discipline, even law, gives us the freedom to live for goodness and not just for anything at all. The restraints and laws of wisdom give us the discipline that caused my friend's fingers to fly across the piano. And I wonder if this isn't also true in other areas of our life. Could we not truly be more free when our character is shaped in a way that gives us structure, restraint, and wisdom? So this is the topic that we will explore today. The idea that restraint, discipline, and structure actually make us more free. And we'll think about what this might mean for our moral, our practical, and our skillful lives. To explore this subject, we're first going to look at our musical example, where we'll talk about counterpoint and box fugues, and I'll interview my brother Joel about that. Then we're going to look at a poem by Jane Tyson Clement, who was the subject of last week's episode, called Box Invention about how our lives could become more free uh, if they were disciplined by the wisdom of restraint. And finally, we will look at our visual example of the TV series Avatar The Last Airbender and explore what it might be like to become someone who submits ourselves to restraint and discipline so that we can become truly free masters of choice and of excellence in our lives. I'm so excited to share this week's episode with you, which is something that has both interested me on an intellectual level, but has also impacted me on a personal level and has been something that has been a key theme, particularly throughout my PhD. So, as I said in the intro, I hope that you will settle in with a cup of tea and think through this topic with me. Now, before I dive in properly, I have to say a sincere thank you to my sponsors, both through Anselm Society and also to all of my patrons on Patreon. I truly mean it when I say that I could not produce this podcast and keep ticking away on my PhD if it weren't for your generous help. I'm truly so thankful for all of you, and I hope that you see yourselves as a part of the great cloud of patrons that keep this podcast going. I also wanted to say that if you enjoy this podcast, it really helps me if you go and leave a rating and review on iTunes, and then share it with somebody you think might enjoy it. So with all those details out of the way, let's dive into this week's episode— exploring the beauty of restraint and freedom. just been listening to The Two-Part Invention number 8 in F Major by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, who is, of course, one of the fathers of Western music. And this provides a great entree into our conversation about the need for structure and for restraint in freedom, uh, which we're going to begin by talking about the structure that provides the backbone for most of the music as we know it. Isn't that right, Joel? It is indeed. And to talk about this, I have my excellent brother Joel with me, who I have bribed first with shepherd's Pie and shortly thereafter by going to the pub with me (laughs) to talk with all of you about counterpoint. Mm -hmm. So Joel, give us, first of all, a basic explanation. What is counterpoint and how can we kind of hear it in something like this?
1: Great question. So counterpoint is sort of the basis of what we call Western music, uh, sort of the canon of Western music. And the canon of Western music starts... Uh, it's arguably at different points but sort of the the common era of 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 music starts with with um, sort of this with Bach and the way that he develops counterpoint and then goes uh, until around the, the beginning of the 20th century this is sort of where tonality is put into into sort of a form and what we mean when we say counterpoint which is which is what is used it's developed by Bach especially it's it's prior it's it's present prior to Bach there are certainly treatises and thoughts on this prior to Bach, but Bach gives us sort of the, the musical book, as it were, a proverbial book, not not actual book, but sort of... Um, uh, the, the framework. Book, the framework, yeah, for how to think about what counterpoint is. And effectively, it's this. Uh, a counterpoint is taking two different lines, two different lines in harmony with each other. They are complementary in this sense that they are interdependent in terms of their harmonic content. But they are independent in terms of their thematic sort of shape and contour, and their their rhythms and the way that that uh, that the, sort of the notes align with each other. They do have a certain complementarity to each other, but they function. Uh, independently um, of the other line.
0: So like when we're listening to the piece that I played at the very beginning mm-hmm. you can definitely hear two distinct melodies. That's right. right. He's playing one with one hand and one with the other. That's right. Also I should have mentioned that this is played by the classical pianist Glenn Gold who's mm-hmm. long, long ago passed away now but you can hear in one hand he's playing one melody and in the other hand he's playing another melody mm-hmm. and they are distinct from one another, and yet, they intertwine and overlap in beautiful ways.
1: That's right. And a lot of the way that counterpoint is developed is in the relationship between the harmonies. So for instance, you can go from one harmony to another harmony in opposite directions, tonally, Mm -hmm. but you can't in the same direction. However, there's no particular rules necessarily on how you uh, arrange. The, the notes. So you might have one one uh, melody going in eighth notes, which is a faster rhythm, and one note one melody going in quarter notes, which is a slower rhythm. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you can sort of play with these rules, and they and you'll sort of get interesting ways that the harmony interacts with w- with each other.
0: Yes, and if any of you have ever done. Um... Choir, you will of course a be used to this, but also whenever you do things like rounds uh, mm-hmm. in choir. So, mm-hmm. like, what is an example of a round? Row, row,
1: row your boat, row, gently down the stream. Row, your boat, gently marry, down marry, the stream. Etc. Like, Etc. Et 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 <laughs> et right.
0: So. That's an example of we are both doing. I mean, it's the same melody, but independent melodies at the same time. Also, we That's did right. not plan doing that, so no. I <laughs> hope that we were actually on key. <laughs> I think we um, okay. But like that, or uh, I don't know, I used to always do Dona Nobis Pachem, in which mm-hmm. the sopranos are going, Dona Nobis Pachim Pachem, and the, the altos are going, don't I know
1: And that's actually a better example of counterpoint because, because they're two
0: depend, independent that's melodies. That's right. They're yeah. independent
1: melodies that complement each other harmonically.
0: But they're doing separate things.
1: Rhythmically and in terms of contour, yeah.
0: So to me, um, really, counterpoint sounds like a dance because it's two yeah. people. Doing their own separate thing, but in correspondence to, in relationship to each other. That's
1: right. And think about it. Like uh, sometimes in a dance, you see people do opposite motions with mm-hmm. their feet. They're sort of mirroring each other, but they're in opposite direction. Sometimes they're in the same direction. Sometimes one person will sort of, if you think about, like for instance, swing or something. Mm-hmm. One person will do something with their hands, and the person will do with kick the with their yeah. foot. And they may not do it all at the same time, but it's all complementary. Yeah. It's never outside of the context of the other lines.
0: So, okay, so this is my question. When we're talking about this, Mm -hmm. I'm hearing, and when you listen to this, you hear a lot of freedom, right? The dance, the sense Mm -hmm. of expression. But am I right in saying that counterpoint is tied in pretty fundamental ways to kind of rules or structures harmonically?
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah. So part of the reason that you see it sort of come into being and then you see so many people uh, looking at the music of Bach is that Bach creates... Um, in, through his music, through the music mm-hmm. itself, you can see this sort of working itself out in his music, certain rules for how to sort of uh, practice counterpoint in mm-hmm. ways that, that, that sort of have uh, predictable results musically. Mm-hmm. And, and these results become the basis for... Uh, the music, everything from um, from Handel to Haydn to Mozart to Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And whenever somebody is questioning or pushing the mm-hmm. sort of the way that you might create sound, it's always in the context of these rules that have been sort of set and come into the the larger sphere of acceptance. Which is
0: interesting because even if you're transgressing the rule, you mm-hmm. have to know the rule to transgress it.
1: That's right. To some That's extent. absolutely right. And for what it's worth, Bach does transgress his own rules quite yeah. often. Like He, he does, but he, he does it in clever ways that are always intentional.
0: And see, this relates to the idea of freedom and structure, because mm-hmm. I was saying that um, my friends who are classical pianists are in some ways much freer than I am as a, as a not very good pianist, because they have the ability both to be an excellent pianist That's and right. to break the rules, That's whereas right. I just don't even know how to follow the rules.
1: Well, there's a certain truth to that. And I, and I remember when, uh, when I was working in, uh, on my, my undergraduate degree at Berkeley. And I would Which, go,
0: P.S., this is part of why Joel, part of many reasons why Joel is my musical expert. He indeed. did his undergrad in composition.
1: That's right, composition at Berklee College of Music in Boston, major in composition, minor in, in film conducting, uh, film and orchestral. And when I would go to piano practice rooms to work on my, uh, just, I would take a few labs here and there, and so I did do a little bit of piano performance, but uh, I would go, and I was, I was never really a serious performance mm-hmm. uh, person because I wasn't majoring in it, mm. But uh, I would go on, and, and there's a lot of jazz performance mm. majors at, Ber- at Berkeley. And jazz, of course, is a very improvisational mm. uh, form. But when you would go in, you wouldn't hear them improvising on the mm. piano. You'd hear them going over uh, every single scale, every single arpeggio, every single form of every single chord over and over and mm. over again for hours and hours and hours on end. You, and you'd begin to realize that the only reason they would be able to improvise is because when they would improvise, they'd be working within the systematic framework that had been given to them through the muscle memory of doing all these scales. It's sort of the same yeah. sensibility as, as with Counterpoint.
0: Well, and it makes me think of, um, if, you, if you've ever gone to like a, a jazz improv show, mm-hmm. um, or even just like a night where yep. everybody brings in their instruments and does their thing, it's amazing and it's so fun. And I would say there's nothing freer or more, yeah. more of a release than watching people do that. But That's the reason right. they're able to is like you're saying, because... They know like 12 bar blues, right? Mm-hmm. You always know what's going to happen um,
1: yeah.
0: to some extent. There are of, certain
1: the, rules, yeah.
0: The rules, which makes you able to.
1: Not the least of which is that there are 12 bars. Yes, indeed, 12 <laughs> bars. And they, and they, <laughs> they tend to be divi- harmonic, yeah. yeah. Exactly, divided up in certain ways. And even more than that, just as an additional note to that, you can watch how really, really good jazzers mm-hmm. will respond to each other and sometimes even work at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, sort of putting together these riffs that that might actually sort of intermingle hmm. uh, with each other.
0: I think I might put a jazz song at the end of this segment yeah. so people can experience it. I want to cool, pause... Cool, mo- cool, cool, dude. Um, I just sounded incredibly not cool. Um, <laughs> I also want to put in here a, a plug for Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm-hmm. Um, who's excellent, isn't he?
1: He is indeed very and excellent. Also,
0: everyone should read about his life because his life is very fascinating.
1: Yes, I think that um, if you want somewhere to, if you feel that that you want to grow in your understanding of classical music on the whole, or or, or mu- sort of music of of the Western canon, as mm-hmm. it were, there's no better place to start than Bach. Uh, there's such a variety of different kinds mm-hmm. of music from his uh, from his uh, fugues and his piano mm-hmm. or his keyboard music to uh, every everything up to like the the B minor mass to the uh, to the St. Matthew passion, there's just a massive amount of music to go through. And um, there's something for everyone. And mm-hmm. uh, if you want to get into the sort of the real roots of of classical music in the Western tradition, it's it's definitely Bach.
0: And um, and this leads me to something else, which is that we have talked about two kind of traditions which we sometimes think of as separate, mm-hmm. which is jazz and classical, Mm -hmm. but of course they really aren't that separate in some sense, right? No, no. But that brings me to another question, which is that in the 20th century, everyone questions everything, right? And we have something called atonalism. Can you explain that to us?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons why atonalism, which is basically the idea that uh, you create music outside of a tonal framework in which there's reference to any other tone or system of tones.
0: So you know how when you listen to music, sometimes there's a note you want it to resolve on or, yes. or you want the harmony to sound. We want it to right. be thirds, we so, want it to be whatever.
1: So we call this, we in, in in tonalism, you call this a key. So you might be playing in the key of C, you might be mm-hmm. playing in the key of F sharp. Atonalism is the decentralization from, from not just from key, but from the relationship of different Tonalities within a key. So, so one of the fundamental bases of tonal music is the idea that you have dominant chords and tonic chords. A tonic is always your your. It's your home key. It's your mm-hmm. home chord. And uh, a a dominant. This is easier to do with the piano in front of me. But a, a dominant uh, chord within within mm-hmm. a scale within the for instance the scale of mm-hmm. of C major. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the dominant of C major is G. Mm-hmm. And G, uh, the way that the notes sound want to push toward back to tonic.
0: And isn't it so weird? I love when we talk about music we talk about they want to or we want yeah. them to. We feel it intuitively. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. There are these intuitions about the it partly because of the way that certain kinds of dissonances mm-hmm. cause us to to long for consonants. Yes.
0: Yeah. So atonalism decentralizes that. That's
1: right. It That's takes right.
0: away the compass that gives you kind of the anchor.
1: Well, I think we should say it tries to decentralize. It tries it. to season yeah. yes. This this becomes Why a does problem. It try, Joel? Well, so this becomes a problem very early on. Schoenberg runs into this problem. Schoenberg is uh, Arnold Schoenberg is is a composer at the turn of the twentieth century. He's at this what we call the second Viennese school. Mm-hmm. And he's in the midst of trying to sort of deal he he is part of the response to some of the middle class despair of, mm. of Sort of this, the end of Romanticism at the beginning. That's right. That's right. And so, part of the response of that in this this second Viennese school is this engagement with atonalism, and it's used uh, to sort of get it get at the the um, the dissonance. Uh, that's really uh, underneath everything. They're, all that they're feeling. There is no resolution. You they have no suffering dissonance. in their lives.
0: So they need to make it through some. That's um, right. That's right. You music. can't
1: get from dissonance to to resonance or dissonance mm-hmm. to consonance. There's there's only dissonance, and so it's kind of an attempt to create sustained dissonance. But the problem is, when they try to do this freely, when they mm-hmm. try to just sort of create free atonal music, they always end up back on, accidentally, occasionally <laughs> creating things that sound like tones, the things mm-hmm. that sound like tonal structures, mm-hmm. and this frustrates them because everyone's going to end up saying to them, well, you say it's atonal, but it doesn't sound atonal. And there's no systematic way mm-hmm. to say that it's actually atonal. So what they actually end up having to do is creating a new framework for how to create sound, how to how to produce hmm. notes in, in a sort of contrapuntal way. They mm-hmm. still hang on to this idea of counterpoint. So so what's developed is uh, the 12-tone approach, this is Arnold Schoenberg. The 12-tone approach gives each note in the chromatic scale. So there's 12 notes in the, in a, in the chromatic scale. If you were to look mm-hmm. from C to C on a piano, mm-hmm. every note, including the black keys, would be, a chromatic, mm-hmm. would be the chromatic scale. You, you give a number to every one of those chromatic notes. And then whether by your own sort of rules or by randomization, you mix all the numbers up. And mm-hmm. then you create a, an X and a Y uh, axis. And then you create a whole table of 144 characters. Oh my gosh. And you use that table to uh, to construct your piece of music.
0: So the thing that I think is wonderful and incredibly ironic about this and we'll connect yep. in my next section where I talk more about how this applies to our own moral choices for, for mm-hmm. instance mm-hmm. is that in a desire to create something that was free mm-hmm. from the tonal constructs that they kind of inherited mm. they actually created a much more elaborate system a much more restraining or or kind of I don't know yeah. extreme system yeah. than if they had just stuck with tonalism.
1: Well, yeah. Well, oh, I mean, I, I, in some ways, you could say that, that they have very similar features. Yeah. Uh, that they and and there there is some really interesting aspects to to sort of uh, what, what you would call serial music or twelve mm-hmm. tone music. Um, and if you were to ask Arnold Honor, Honor Schoenberg toward the middle or end of his career, after he's become very famous for this, mm-hmm. his teaching, he would say, "No, no, no! Don't don't study me. Study Bach. Study." Mm. Study Mozart. Study the, the the composers who created tonal hmm. counterpoint to begin with, because he understands that that there is that he is still somewhat in in the lineage. He's still in this sort of unbroken stream, even hmm. though he has broken the, the the way that tonalism is created. He's still working within the tradition, even as Bach is working within the tradition. Bach is working with nearly a millennia, or or a, a, the better part of a millennia. You know, seven mm-hmm. six or seven hundred years at least. Of the development of polyphony mm. in church yeah. music, and of Palestrina, who mm-hmm. already prior to him has has uh, enacted a lot of a, mm-hmm. a lot of these contrapuntal rules um, through his music and through church music and that sort of thing. So. so, what
0: you're saying is that the freedom that Schoenberg shows in his new kind mm-hmm. of music was largely or almost wholly dependent on his knowledge. Of the rules that he then certainly, chose to, bro- to break.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say that there there's, that's, that's not an unfair thing to say. And I mean, there's certainly a, more of a randomization to the way that that um, that serial music works, but you, you could manipulate it in so many different ways to even sound like tonal music.
0: <laughs> that's so fascinating. Well, Joel, thank you for coming on and explaining counterpoint. I'm now going to take a break, everyone, where I play for you some improv jazz while I take Joel off to get his pint. <laughs> Thanks for being on, Joel.
1: Absolutely.
0: my friends, you have just been listening to a song called Parking Ticket by the Jacob Mann Big Band, which you can find on Greatest Hits, Volume 2 EP. And this is a perfect example of improv jazz. Pretty much all you heard with the bass um, was improv. And you can see how easy it is to build off of and riff and play with, um, with jazz and make new and beautiful things because of that underlying structure so i hope you've enjoyed your little jazz interlude which we have given to us by courtesy of my friend logan williams who is my expert on all things jazz i have taken joel to his pub gotten his pint and now i am seated back home with a cup of mint tea thinking all the more about freedom and restraint Now, the thing that I think is interesting is it's hard for me to start talking about jazz and about tonality and about the rules and structure and the breaking of rules and structure in music and in counterpoint without already beginning to draw parallels with it in my mind to the lives we live and the choices that we make. If it is true in Bach, Um, and in all the music of the Western canon, that we need a sense of structure on which to hang tonality and beauty so that we can begin to have freedom from that structure. Might that not also be true in our own lives as we make decisions? We live in a world that prizes infinite decisions, infinite freedom. But might it be true that structure that rules, to some extent, might actually make us live freer lives and wiser lives. And that brings us to our literary example for the day, which is a poem called Bach Invention by Jane Tyson Clement. Now, for any of you who haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet, I talked about this um, poet with my friends and the editor at The Plough, Very H- Huliet, last week on the episode, um, so you should go give that a listen. But Jane Tyson Clement was a poet who lived in a difficult time. She grew up and became an adult in the midst of World War II. And a lot of her writing is concerned with how to live a wise life in a difficult and complex world. And for her, that took some extreme um, choices. It it ended up with her um, becoming a Christian, uh, becoming a pacifist, and then joining the Bruderhof. Uh, But I think that her life is an example of someone who really wanted to know how to live free of the restraints and confines of the world, and who in pursuit of that kind of freedom actually led to restraints which then she reported made her feel freer. And that is kind of the theme of this poem, which I'm going to read to you. And I think it's beautiful that she ties this in with the Bach invention. So before I unpack this poem, I'm going to read it to you. This is called, The Bach Invention by Jane Tyson Clement. If I could live as finished as this phrase, no note too strong, each cadence purposed, clear, the logic of the changing harmony, building and breaking to a major chord, strangely at home within a minor web of music. If I could define my end, from the beginning measures trace my course, I might be old and prudent, shown by laws how to devise a pattern for my days, and still be free, unhampered yet refined. He sat before the keys and turned the notes into fabric of design and peace. Here are the notes, the keys, my fingers free, to run them through their course, and here my mind, seeing his wisdom, work within the cords finding his knowledge in the finished line. I would be wise if such restraint were mine." So I love this poem because in many ways she's describing the experience that I had of watching a classical pianist, except for that in this case, it is her sitting at the piano playing a piece by Bach. She's playing one of the inventions, which are the very heart of the contrapuntal, as, as Joel would call it, the two melodies playing together. And as she's playing, she feels like she's having this kind of moment of communion with Bach. As she kind of plays this piece, she imagines that he's communicating something special to her as she's playing. And as she listens, not as she listens, as she plays, she kind of feels that she's channeling this free and restrained wisdom. I love kind of seeing the way that she throws these two kind of, kind of, worlds of words together. One world of words kind of having to do with discipline and the other having to do with freedom. So she uses words like restraint and discipline with words like purposed, logic, define, trace, prudent, law, and pattern. All of these have this connotation of of something being limited, confined, restrained, that sense of a limiting of freedom. But this leads to the other words and images she uses where she talks about being unhampered and free. And this experience of the extreme structure and the glorious freedom that she experiences in playing a Bach invention prompts her to think about what it would be like to have a life that was as beautiful, as refined and restrained, but also as free as a Bach invention. It makes me think of a lot of the wisdom literature, especially in scripture, Proverbs, of course, if I used to know people who would read one Proverbs every day, um, one Proverb every day, one chapter of Proverbs, and Proverbs is full of, of rules. I mean, the very word proverb is a wise saying, something that tells you how to live. And of course, if someone's giving you a positive enforcement of how to live or what not to do, there is a sense of restraint with that. But the theme also consistently throughout Proverbs is the idea that we are given these laws, these restraints, these precepts, because they free us to live a good life. I love over and over again the metaphor that's given um, in Proverbs is the idea of the sweetness or the health of eating a good life, a true and a wise life. It's like the passage I read at the beginning from Psalm 119. I walk in liberty because I have dwelt on your precepts. So when we think about how we live our lives, I think that our world is kind of prone to think of freedom as libertarianism. And I don't mean that in the the political sense, although we could explore that. But libertarianism as in the sense of freedom being um, the ability to do whatever you want. But I think in this image that we're given uh, all through Proverbs is that true freedom is living in alignment with the way that God made the world so that our lives experience the peace and fruit and blessing of living well. Proverbs is running through with the idea of natural law, that the world is made in such a way that things, when they perform to their natural end, flourish. And if that sounds very clinical and academic, I, um, I think I would sum it up with, I think this is a quote from Chesterton, although I cannot exactly remember, where he says, uh, a leopard may be free to be anything, but if you free him of his spots, he is no longer free to be a leopard. So there's a sense in which that if the world is a particular way, we are free when we are able to live into the gloriousness of what we are created to be. So if humans are created to love, then we are free when we are able to love well. Being free to hate is not really free at all. So Proverbs is full of restraints, not because it wants us to be full of laws and, and dutiful and legalistic, but because it wants to help us live into the fullness of what it is to be a human. Just like a Bach invention is structured enough so that it's moments of glorious peeling away from the melody, are actually beautiful and free. So human nature does best when it lives within the confines of what it is. It can flourish when it doesn't try to be something beyond what it is or different than it is. St. Augustine, who is probably the most important theologian of the Western Church, or really in general, um, outside, of course, the authors of the Bible like Paul, is famous for his definition of freedom, which is that freedom is the ability to choose the good. Now, I used to think that this was kind of a cop-out, because I thought, well, if freedom is choosing the good, then it's really not freedom at all, because freedom would be the ability to choose good and bad. But I think that there's a, a, a way that we can return back to the image of the different kinds of music that Joel was talking about, how the music... Which breaks the the counterpoint, which breaks the kind of in um, structure that's given by Bach, actually becomes more encumbered with its own system of rebellion. Rebellion is more um, kind of both in music and in life is more extravagant and weighty and exhausting than living into the goodness and fullness of life. There's a sense in which choosing evil actually puts more constraints and more. Um, It limits our freedom more than being able to choose what is good because to live into what is good is to live into true freedom. And this is an image that's actually given to us often in scripture. The idea of choosing sin is described as being in bondage or in slavery. Romans 6, 15 through 23 is talking about this kind of tension between freedom and Freedom and sin and grace. And it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now come and claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So what I think is really interesting about this is that there's a sense in which what Paul is saying is that we will be slaves to some kind of restraint. But the question is, will we be restrained by righteousness, which leads us to a fullness of our human person, makes us be able to live into the fullness of what it is to be human being? Or will we be slaves to our own lusts and desires? Will we be slaves to sin? This, of course, is picked up again elsewhere um, in, I believe it's Galatians. Yes, Galatians 5, where he's talking again about this tension between freedom and how we live our lives. And he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled by keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourselves. I chose this passage because I think it beautifully illustrates a Christian idea of freedom. A Christian idea of true freedom can never be one that is simply libertarian, that is simply about giving people the right to choose whatever they want to choose. Because Christian freedom is always limited by something. It is always limited by love. That's what's happening in Galatians as he says, you are free to live any way that you can. Let the thing that limits you be love, which dictates how you relate to others. And that limitation really is not a curtailment of your freedom. It doesn't make you less. It actually enables you to be more and to live into that in a freer and more beautiful way. And he ends this passage with this really kind of shocking statement where he says, "Um, if you eat and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. And I think it, it seems like a kind of shocking thing to end this passage with, or this particular section with. But I think what he's saying is that freedom, which has no constraints, actually becomes our demise. It becomes a thing that ultimately enslaves and consumes us. If freedom is not limited by love and guided by the Spirit, then we won't truly be able to live free lives in that sense. We will end our own freedom. We will destroy ourselves. So I am waxing eloquently, or perhaps not eloquently, but long. But I brought this in to say that I think this is what Jane Tyson Clement is getting at. As she's playing this beautiful invention, she is sensing in a very kind of embodied way that a good life, a free, unhampered, beautiful life, is not one that's free of restraints, but it's one that has the proper rooting, the proper kind of gravitational pull from which the dance of melody and of wisdom can properly be lived out. But that leads us to another very practical question, which is how do we live these wise, free, and restrained lives? It's all very good to talk about laws or precepts being good, but how does that not become legalism? And it's all very good to talk about freedom and being limited by love, but what does that look like on a more practical level? And that brings us to our final example, which is Avatar, The Last Airbender. So I have to say that something I enjoy about this podcast is that I get to share with you both the high art of Johann Sebastian Bach and the unknown art, not unknown, but not as well-known art of Jane Tyson Clement. And then I get to share with you the fun art of a Nickelodeon cartoon which is Avatar The Last Airbender. Now, oddly enough, I discovered this last year. Joel kept on telling me that it was great. And I remember in my childhood, we didn't really have TV through most of my childhood, but there was a period of which we kind of did. And I remember Nathan really enjoying it. But it was a show that ran, I think, for three seasons on Nickelodeon. And, um, I'd never, I'd never watched all the way through. And Joel was like, you will love it. And he showed me a couple of episodes and I got hooked. And last year, in one of my really intense periods of writing during my PhD, I would watch an episode or two, like at lunch or, um, just as a little break. And I don't mean two, two would have been a bit excessive for a break, but I would watch one episode, which was like 20 minutes. And, um, I just became enthralled with it. It's a good story. It's beautifully told. It's really compelling Uh, It makes tons of references to classical art and its illustrations. And I just was won over to this children's show. Um, So I really enjoyed it, and I just find it so fascinating. So I thought how fun it is to actually share this with you. And it does tie in with this idea of restraint and freedom and what it looks like to become a truly free person. But first, let me get you the background of the show. So the show is based around the, the premise of Avatar, the last airbender of Aang. So in the premise of the show, there are these four nations, the water, air, fire, and earth nations. And they're of course all based off the four elements. And within all of these nations, there are people called benders who have the ability, who have like a special ability, a special power to manipulate their um, corresponding elements. So in the Earth Kingdom, there are Earthbenders who can bend rocks, and they're all kind of like warriors with rocks, or they can raise earth out of the ground and shoot it at people. Um, or uh, the Waterbenders are people who can who can bend or use water, manipulate it. They can also heal with water. So it's kind of a you know a fantastical, mythical idea um, where there's these four different nations um, who all who not all of them have the power to Earth Waterbend, but like particular people have this power, and they're kind of the protectors. And sometimes the warriors of their various things. But of course, because they're humans, everyone, um, there's these tensions and battles between the various nations. And particularly the Fire Nation um, is always wanting to take over everyone. As kind of a mediator to this competition between the four nations, there is this character who reincarnates, although he's a different, he slash is a different person in every generation. So it's not just like a reincarnation. It's like a, Almost like a lineage, like a monarchy, um, that every generation there's something called an avatar, which is someone who can um, bend all of the elements and therefore acts as kind of like a mediator to keep peace and to keep balance between the four nations. But at the beginning of this story, the avatar has disappeared for a hundred years and the Fire Nation has gotten to take over and they're about to take over the entire place and, you know, they're fires, so they're gonna burn everything to the ground. When the avatar suddenly reappears, and it's Aang, this young boy, who's been you find this out in the first ten minutes, so I'm totally spoiling the first ten minutes, but not the rest of the series. He's accidentally been frozen in an iceberg. And he comes out just in time. Um, but if he's going to keep the Fire Nation from taking over, he has to learn to master all of the four elements before he goes and does battle with this final person. So the whole series centers around Aang, who is uh the Avatar, who's this young boy, he's like I think maybe 11. I don't think they ever say it explicitly. And he has to become not only, he doesn't not only learn how to bend these elements, but become a true master of them. He has to become someone, um, so to speak, who is not a amateur pianist like myself, but who is a true master of all of the elements. And so most of the series kind of follows his journey. And of course, there's difficult things and, and adventures and journeys um, that go along with this. But it follows him learning to become the avatar, learning to become the master of all these four elements. And as I watched it, of course, you know, to a PhD student studying moral formation, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, but it really was a really compelling kind of um, metaphor or lived story of someone learning not only to gain these, these kind of powers whatever, but to gain a character, to become a person of virtue. Um, and to me, there's kind of three things that stand out continually in Eng's story about what it looks like to become a person who is both free and restrained, who lives into freedom because they have learned the constraints of their own nature and their own capacities. And as I watched it, I kept on kind of finding these parallels uh, in my own experience of learning to become a PhD student, learning to become a proper scholar. So I thought I would end today with kind of the three lessons of, of, to me, the three lessons of Avatar the Last Airbender about what it takes to become someone who is free because they have accepted restraint. So the first thing that stands out to me about this series is that it has an emphasis on not discounting the little things that become the foundation for our character. So in his search to become to master all these elements, he goes to each nation and kind of learns um, how to master the elements. But a big part of this is learning to be patient with him and do the simple things. He kind of has this attitude at first that I'm the Avatar, I should be able to do anything and do it freely and great just because I'm the, the chosen one, so to speak. But what he learns is that to master anything, you have to be willing to be humble and to submit yourselves to to the little tasks Of becoming great. Um, If we think about this in terms of of playing the piano, you have to submit yourself, like Joel was saying, to hours and hours of arpeggios and scales and practices before you actually become the artful free pianist who can um, easily play a Bach invention or improv to jazz. And this is true for Aang. He has to learn to submit himself to the almost humiliating tasks of learning earthbending. That's kind of his hardest thing for him because he's an airbender naturally. Um, and of course, what is the opposite of the elusiveness of air and spirit? It is the firmness of rock and earth. And so as he learns this, he has to humble himself, learning that you have to start with the small things. You have to start with restraint in the humble and ordinary tasks of life before you can learn um, to truly be a great master and a free master of, of the element in itself. Before you can learn to freely master the element, you have to commit yourself to the small tasks. And for me, I um, kind of connected this to my own PhD, which was that when I first started my PhD, I kind of had this, this almost prideful imagination in my mind that what really mattered were my ideas, which of course, I hope my ideas do matter, but my ideas and things I wanted to express, and that all those little niggly things like footnotes and doing a good job on spelling and grammar were just sidelines. But the thing that I've actually learned, my advisor has been really wonderful about helping me with this, is that actually attention to the small details, um, restraint and order and discipline and those things actually become the foundation of being the kind of person who is a careful thinker. So if I'm not careful with footnotes, if I'm not careful with grammar, if I'm not careful to learn the skills of this overall trade, how can I trust myself to be a master of these big ideas? It makes me think of Aristotle talks about habitus, which is a virtue, uh, and virtue is the power to act rightly, right? And so if you think about that in a PhD sense, it's the power to act like a scholar. In the sense of ang, it's the power to bend the earth. But to gain habitus, you have to learn techne, which is techne are little skills. And really, he uses it in, in in the conversation of things like being a workman. You have to learn. Um, the basics of if you're a farmer, you have to learn the basics of plowing a field, and of of knowing which things are weeds and which things are meant to grow. You have to learn the techne, the basic skills, before you can learn the virtue of being a powerful farmer or a powerful workman. And so that's the first thing I think that um, that Avatar: The Last Airbender presents to us is the idea that when it comes to being free, we cannot be free, truly free, truly excellent masters of ourselves or of a task we want to accomplish or of a skill we want to master, unless we submit ourselves to the humble tasks, the humble techne, that become the foundation for freedom in the future. The second thing that I love about Avatar is it has this idea that everyone needs a master. He doesn't just go to schools and take courses on these various um, bending techniques. He has to go to every nation and find one person who will be his mentor, his master, and train him to become excellent at this which also means he has to submit, him, submit himself. And there's this picture that the things that we need to be restrained in aren't just rules that we pass down that we could write in a book. We, we have to kind of submit ourselves in humility to a kind of information that can only be passed through relationship or through discipleship. I think often, and my mom often says this to me, about how the Christian tradition was passed for many years before we had the Bible through from person to person through individual discipleship and passing this on this is fundamental to what it is to be christian is that our faith came through personal relationship through an apostolic line through a passing on of wisdom and of the faith from person to person and that jesus spent his whole ministry with his 12 disciples and his 120 disciples personally cultivating them he didn't just say well i've written it all down get this and you'll carry on the things that restrain us come through a personal relationship. Everyone needs a master or a discipler. And this is something really beautifully illustrated in Avatar. He has to go from place to place, finding masters to teach him to become who he's going to become and uh, before he can truly be free. And I found this to be really true in my own life uh, as a PhD. I've realized how deeply impactful it's been to me to have an advisor who not only gives me good ideas for my PhD, but kind of is my master of becoming a scholar. You need someone that you can imitate. That there is is wisdom, that there is power that comes only through relationship. And so when it comes to thinking about how to live a wise and restrained life, I would say seek a master. Seek someone who lives in a wise way that you admire, and ask them to teach you how they live that way. It may it may sound um, kind of scary or bold, but if you know someone who you whose spiritual life you admire, I would challenge you to ask them: Would you ever meet with me once a month, um, and just tell me what's been impactful in your journey? You know, don't say, "Will you be my spiritual master?" But kind of give give that idea to live a wise life. We need masters in spirituality, masters in wise living, masters in the skills we want to become good at. Uh, and I think that's something that's really beautifully illustrated through um, through Avatar The Last Airbender. And then the final thing that Avatar The Last Airbender shows is that at the end of the day, once we have been restrained by the little tasks and the rules that become the foundation of our excellence, and once we have given ourselves to the master uh, and, and have been taught and trained through discipleship, we then... It ultimately comes not down to a rule or a law, but to keeping in step with the spirit. And of course, I'm using this language from scripture, but I think this is also true in the story, which is that at some point we have to own what we have learned and we have to apply it by kind of staying close um, to the heart of God. And I think this is this comes back to the idea of improvisation um, that we got from jazz, which is that you learn all of the rules so that you can wind yourself in beautiful and free ways around the melody and around the the rhythm that's been set for you. At the end of the day, Aang can only be the true master once he applies his own heart to it. But he can only apply his own heart to it once he has learned its rhythms and its rules. And that is actually the ending of this passage that I read you earlier in Galatians. It says so I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not um, gratify the desires of the flesh. And then it goes on and it uses this phrase, um, it talks about being led by the spirit. And then it uses this phrase in verse 28 where it says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. And to me, that's a picture that almost evokes the idea of dancing. That yes, we learn to be limited, um, we learn to accept the limitations of love. We learn to say yes to the rules that become the foundation for our mastery, whether that's in our choices in life or in a topic we want to master or in a skill we want to master. But then ultimately, it becomes this game of improvisation. When we've trained our hearts on the wisdom of Proverbs and on the teachings of Scripture when we have submitted ourselves in relational um, love to somebody else who teaches us what it looks like to live well and to live wisely, then we get to live in the true freedom of improvisation, of walking in step with the spirit, of not departing from the restraints of love or the spirit, but dancing into them in our own individuality, with our own flair. We get to become the bassist who makes an amazing riff in the jazz song. And in my mind... I think that this is what it is to be free. It's to listen, to practice, to submit ourselves to the training of wisdom, so that then we can live in a delightful, fruitful, improvisational, free response to God's Spirit in the world. I think this applies as much to piano playing as it does to wise living. So friends, keep in step with the Spirit. Learn the laws of counterpoint and the forms of jazz so that when you improv, you will shine out beautifully, knowing how to dance in response to the melody that's already there. And that, friends, is all she wrote. My mint tea is out and I am sleepy, but I wish you all well and I would love to hear your thoughts and comments um, on my blog, but also on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. I wish you all a beautiful week, and I hope that you have enjoyed this hour of dwelling on hopefully good and true and beautiful things. Much love.